Okay, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pick back up where we left off, which was in page 9 here. Of, all right, good. Uh, in, on page 9 of, of our notes here. Uh, we're talking about biblical interpretation, but before we do that, actually, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to go off topic for just a moment, because something happened this week that I thought was really interesting, um, and I wanted to kind of draw, draw a link. We're not talking this time about the Christian family and fatherhood and all of those things. We talked about that in our last series, um, but if, if, if you follow the, the dumpster fire that is political discourse today, something really interesting happened this week between President Trump and Kanye West when they came together in the White House and Kanye was saying all sorts of crazy things and some interesting things and whatever the case may be, uh, pitching prison reform, right? And there was this clip that I, I, I thought was really, really fascinating that I'd like to play here uh, of, of him in the White House. Uh, I think it's the bravery that helps you keep this game called life. You know, they try to scare me to not wear this hat, my own friends. But this hat, it gives me, it gives me power in a way. You know, my dad and my mom separated, so I didn't have a lot of male energy in my home. And also, uh, I'm married to a family that, um, you know, <laughs> not a lot of male energy going on. It's beautiful, though. But there's times where, you know, it's something about, you know, I love Hillary, I love everyone, right? But the campaign, I'm with her, just didn't make me feel as a guy that didn't get to see my dad all the time, like a guy that could play catch with his son. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. You made a Superman, that was, that's my favorite superhero, and you made a Superman cake. So we have this really interesting snippet of uh, insight in, in, a, in a kind of a strangely worded way here about a real problem in our society, which is male leadership, right? And one of the things that we, we've emphasized throughout this class, not just in our family class, but as we've emphasized it, is that, that, that we need men to step up and take ownership over spiritual leadership. We need pastors to take ownership over spiritual leadership. We need fathers to take ownership over spiritual leadership. And here we have an interesting uh, circumstance where as Kanye is attempting to bring up the concepts and then he goes on to talk about prison reform and he actually links the fact that prisons are keeping so many fathers away from their sons and, and, and uh, you know whatever you feel about that and President Trump and Kanye West and, 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 and all of that, uh, he really kind of hit on something here which is when, I, when, when he, effectively, what he said is, when I heard the slogan of Hillary Clinton, I felt emasculated. And when there was a man standing up there simply being kind of tough and saying it like it is, and then everybody around me saying, you can't support him because of the color of your skin, when he put that hat on, he said, I felt like a man because he was taking ownership over something. He wasn't just following the people that were the color of his skin. He wasn't just following a woman because that's what you're supposed to do in this, society, this Me Too society now. He followed his own convictions and he followed, as it were, a strong man. And um, yeah, certainly the, the manner of President Trump being a strong man is not uh, the manner that I would advocate. But there, there is a principle there that, that when, when you hear something like that, uh, I'd encourage you, if, 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 if you're listening to things like that through the lens of a biblical worldview, which is what we're attempting to build through all of these, these classes, then 
something like that should tick in your mind and say, here's a, a young man who said, I didn't have a father figure that was around, and I am looking for someone to help me become a man, to take ownership over my own circumstances, and then to feel the empowerment of being able to say, I'm making decisions, and I'm making decisions that I believe are best, and someone to help me along. And he goes on not just to talk about President Trump, but he talked about various business leaders and everything. These men that he followed who were men who, who took ownership and leadership and, and uh, uh, pursued a direction. And, and if I can just translate that over to your lives, this is what our young men need to see in us spiritually. Stepping up and taking ownership over what you believe to be true, not apologizing for it. Now, that doesn't mean you never apologize. If you're wrong, you make it right. But taking ownership, stepping up, doing what's right, not apologizing for doing what's right, not, not doing what's right because of what other people are going to think of you, pardon the double negative, spiritual ownership. And I, I just thought that that clip was really interesting uh, as far as uh, Kanye's perspective on ownership in that realm. And I wanted to start there and remind you a little bit of what we're doing here. This is not just teaching you stuff about the Bible. Uh, this is intended to help you have the confidence to take spiritual ownership of your life, of your family, your children, uh, those that would come to you with questions as you would seek to help other people along their path as well. Uh, <coughs> thoughts or questions before we jump into what we're doing here? So we, um, we, last week we were talking about the other important considerations of Bible interpretation, right? So uh, recall that what we were doing is, is we're kind of digging down to the root of those, pre, uh, those, those assumptions that we made, the preconditions and the assumptions that we make for each of these classes, that the Bible is true, uh, it's, it's an accurate book, that it's a deliberate book, that God desired to communicate, that it is um, a... Oh, I don't have my fill-ins here. <laughs> uh, an accurate book, a deliberate book, a spiritual book, which means that, that it's the Holy Spirit that needs to be a part of it. And the, the fourth one, accurate, deliberate, um, unified book, right? That, that the Bible is telling one story from beginning to end, that there's one message throughout the book. And so we walked through various elements of um, meaning, really, and language last week, right? And talked about how important it is that we understand language and that we understand language at the time that something was written and that we, we, we uh, regard the author's intent as something that's very important. And, and so we talked through all of these things. Uh, we looked at that C.S. Lewis quote where he used the example of the word gentleman, right? And how gentleman used to mean that you had a coat of arms and you had, had land. And then at some point, Someone said, well, the most important thing about a gentleman is not that he has a coat of arms and land, but that he acts like a gentleman, that he is chivalrous, that he is kind. And so we're going to start saying that you're, you can be a gentleman even if you don't have a coat of arms and land. And what C.S. Lewis argued is that that's all well and good as far as empathy and sympathy and, and, and all of those things are concerned. And it's even uh, emphasizing rightly that the most important thing about people is their actions and such, but it ruins the word. Because now, gentleman is no longer a descriptive word. Regardless of how I feel about a person, a description of him, a gentleman is a person that has a coat of arms and land. 
Now it is a word that is based upon my feelings for that person. Is he a gentleman? Is he not a gentleman? Now it's based upon a subjective perception, which means the word no longer has any real value. And then he, of course, correlated that to the word Christian, and that we can say all sorts of things about you know, maybe that person that doesn't go to church and has never read their Bible is more Christian than the guy that's, that sits in church every week because that guy is a hypocrite. But if we redefine the word Christian to simply mean a person that, that, that reflects a certain spirit instead of Christian being a, a person that, that subscribes to a certain set of val- uh, beliefs and values, then we do a disservice. Now, that being said... Um, you know, we would understand from Scripture that a uh, Christian is not a person who claims something. It is a person who lives something. So, uh, but we were talking about words. Yes, sir? I did have a question. I kind of thought about it this week. Yep. Would the Holy Spirit, would that help you interpret the Bible as you're reading it? Absolutely. Um, and we are going to get into... Because it feels like a lot of times... Yep. Like if I look at my reading today versus... So when we talk about the roles and interpretation, the final one that we're going to talk about is the Spirit's role. And you're absolutely right that the Holy Spirit not only has a role, but has a primary role. And uh, there's two elements to what you're talking about. So you talk about the idea that, that things mean something different to you now than they did five years ago. Um, there's two elements. Number one is that before a person has the Holy Spirit, before they're saved, they can intellectually understand things but they cannot understand the spiritual significance of them. And so to that extent, because they don't have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who takes biblical principles and makes them real, makes them something to us. So before a person has the Holy Spirit, um, the, the Bible is just words on a page. Maybe they're good words on a page. Maybe they're important words on a page. But uh, if, you've ever, uh, if you've ever heard somebody who, who may, maybe say an Orthodox Jew, Orthodox Jews uh, do not, you know, they've rejected Christ. They do not believe Christ, Jesus Christ is Messiah or God. Uh, so according to the New Testament, they are not in Christ. They, are, they do not have the Holy Spirit. They are not believers. Uh, if, but, but they regard the Torah particularly the Old Testament and particularly the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture and they, they highly exalt it. So if you ever uh, listen to someone who's an Orthodox Jew uh, talk about the Torah, um, there's uh, several people within our uh, with, within general conservative circles, at least, that, that do this regularly. Uh, Dennis Prager does, and Ben Shapiro does, and um, uh, you know, these guys that are, are, are in, in a certain political ideology but are also uh, outspoken as far as their, their Jewish faith and such. Um, as, as if you've ever heard any of these guys talk about the Torah, they have this high reverence and this respect, but they do put it on the... the, the their reverence and respect comes... As you know, from the same line of thinking as as Aristotle and Plato, and 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 they they kind of put all these guys on the same level and and have this intellectual affirming type understanding of the of of the Word of God, but the believer has a spiritual understanding of these things that that transcends that. The other element of this um, that that you I hope all of you will experience from year to year is that um, we, we call the Bible the living word. And remember last week we, we said the Bible is not a living document like people think the, 
you know, the, the progressives are trying to say that the Constitution is a living document, so it needs to be updated to our times. And uh, when the person wrote it, now it's a work of art. So it is up to us to interpret the Constitution in a manner that we see fit for our changing times. And we said, no, what we need to do is we need to understand author's intent and we need to understand words as they existed at the time to understand what it was that this person put in place. If I have any care or respect for the actual meaning of that document. And we said the same thing with the Bible. So the Bible is not a living document in that sense, but we do call it the living word. And what we mean by that is this. Uh, I might be reading the scriptures and a certain thing jumps out at me and I learn tremendous lessons from it and I grow and then a year later, two years later, I'm reading that same passage of scripture or I'm hearing it preached and something entirely new jumps out at me. And I sit there and I say, why didn't I see that before? But, but the reason why I didn't see that before is because that wasn't the lesson that the Spirit of God was teaching me at that time. But there's so much more in there. Uh, to, it, it's kind of like you're mining, right? You're, 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 you're digging and you get something. And then you, you keep digging in the same spot and a little bit deeper there's something else. And then you keep digging in the same spot. But there's a lot more spots you can dig too. And so the, the Word of God is, is an inexhaustible resource of lessons and of opportunities to learn. So there is both of these. There's the one element which is the Spirit of God uh, that only is in the life of the believer teaching. And then the other element is that even those who have had the Spirit of God for many years and have studied the text might find something new. Um, I, I can tell you, when I became a father, uh, the, uh, uh, my understanding of a lot of passages of Scripture changed. Uh, when Jesus says that uh, God desires to give good gifts as a loving father desires to give good gifts to his children, or when you read in Hebrews, uh, and it's quoting from so uh, Proverbs chapter 3, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he's well pleased. And, of course, I'd related to that from a son's standpoint, that my, my father chastened and corrected me uh, out of love, and I knew that. But when you are a father, and you have to correct your child, and you know your intentions toward that child, and you know how much you want to bless your child, and you know the, that, that you would give anything to, to, to bless that child, but that there are certain times where you can't bless them because of their actions toward you, because of their actions toward others, uh, there... All of those things just take on a new meaning. The Spirit of God is able to take my circumstances and my experiences and impose them upon the Scriptures to teach me new lessons. So yeah, we'll get there. Uh, the, as we get into the night, we'll talk about uh, how the Spirit, the role that the Spirit plays. Um, so last week we were at this types of literature. We don't interpret poetry the same as narrative, right? We don't interpret those the same as prophecy. If I'm, if I'm uh, coming into something that is narrative and focused, in other words, it's telling a story and it's intended to be historical in nature, I am going to interpret it as literally as possible, right? If I'm reading a history book, then I'm going to interpret that book. The words that are said are the words that they mean. However, if I set down the narrative book and I pick up a book of poetry, I am going to now have a shift in mindset as to what words mean and how they're used, right? Because all of a sudden we're talking about flowers, but we're not actually talking about flowers. We're talking about women. Or uh, we're talking about um, um, you know, footsteps, but we're not actually talking about footsteps. We're talking about marching armies or whatever it might be. So now we have to change the manner in which we interpret 
to conform itself to the nature of the type of literature that's being written. So the Psalms are hymns. They're poetic. Just like songs today, uh, you have to allow for a certain amount of what we call poetic license in songs, right? Songs are not always meant to just be a straight one-to-one interpret everything literally type interpret uh, idea. They can have flowery language, unique language that is intended to uh, express things in a more artistic way. Poetry does that. So when I open up to the Psalms and um, I, I read some of the things that the Psalms say, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Uh, I'm not going to interpret that, 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 that God is actually, you know, taking my hand and making me drink at a, at a pool, I recognize that what that is is David saying, because God is my God and he cares for me like a shepherd cares for a sheep, I can trust him to provide for me. He'll, take me, he'll lead me to the waters. He'll lead me to the green pastures. He will, he will guide my path. He will protect me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And then he gives two things that a shepherd holds, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. One of those, the, the, the rod and the staff, one of those is to protect the sheep from outside threats, wolves, bears, lions, whatever. The other of those is to actually prod the sheep along. Right? That's why they had the crook. The crook on, the, on their staff was to grab a sheep by the neck and pull them in the way that they needed to go. So it's a comfort, David says, not only that you protect me from outside forces, but that you'll also yank me along when I need a little bit of a push. You've got me in your hand. And, and um, so that's poetic, right? It's, we're, we're, we're not looking at that literally in the same way that I would read narrative and say that is literal. Uh, we acknowledge the existence of various things, even in Jesus' teaching. You know, uh, we, we can say that Jesus, that, that the Gospels are narrative, a historical narrative of Jesus' life, but still acknowledge that when Jesus was talking, he used stories, he used parables, he used allegories. Uh, he, he, he got pretty hyperbolic sometimes, pretty exaggerated. Uh, he, he had a lot of sarcasm, right? Jesus was kind of a sarcastic guy at times. Um, irony, metaphor, these things are valid, but we need to identify them. But what we're not doing is saying, well, I'm going to say that this is metaphor. What my goal is, is to say, when Jesus said that, was he, was he intending it to be allegorical or literal? It's not about whether I want it to be allegorical or literal, right? If, if I'm here talking, for the next two hours or so I'm talking, and then you go on YouTube when I upload it, and uh, someone else is watching it with you, and, and you say, everything that he's saying, that was all just allegorical. He was just, trying to, he, he was just trying to say that we should love everybody. He wasn't really talking about anything literal. Well, that's all well and good. You can interpret my words that way, but that's not what I mean. I'm telling you what I'm telling you, and I mean it literally. So you can interpret it however you want, but if you want to, if you want to interpret meaning in the same way I'm giving meaning, then you have to understand what I'm intending to do when I'm giving this to you. If you've ever been around someone that, that, that and you know, we see it in politics, but if you've ever been around someone that twists your words knowingly or intentionally, uh, maybe, maybe you're having a fight with your wife and they do this or your child does this, where uh, the, you say something and they, they say, well, 
uh, you think this. And, and, and No, 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 no. I never said that. I never even intended that. But in bad faith, they're kind of twisting your words against you to, 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 to win the argument or whatever the case may be. If we do that, then we're just not communicating, right? We, we will not be able to get anywhere if we intentionally, for one reason or another, take the words of Scripture and twist them or contort them in a way that we cannot have confidence that they were intended by the author. So uh, we have uh, um, our next point here. Appropriate disagreements and interpretations surround the interplay of these elements. In other words, uh, we are not always going to agree on every interpretation of Scripture. You know, last time in the last class we got into a little talk about music, right? And, and the relationship of the Christian to secular music, the Christian to spiritual music. And this is an area where there can be appropriate disagreements based upon the way that we interpret various passages of Scripture. There's wiggle room there because the Bible does not say, thus saith the Lord, on a lot of those issues. Those are appropriate. Those are going to happen. You are going to interpret the Bible and various passages of the Bible slightly differently than I am, or at least interpret as we talked about last week. Remember how we talked about with those, with those pictures? Um, we talked about the pattern of meaning, the implications. So we have direct meaning, what, what is exactly being said, the pattern of meaning, different things that fall into the general category and are entirely consistent with what was said, then implications. Implications are things that I can draw out from that meaning that, that aren't, aren't necessarily related to what was being said but are, are still entirely valid. And then uh, invalid implications. Uh, and then um, finally the significance, which is what it means to me, right? And we're going we're gonna to debate about significance. We're going to debate about implications. But we should not be debating about meaning. We should be able to sit down, open the Bible, and say with a few exceptions where either the language is a little bit ambiguous or whatever the case may be, we should be able to look at it and say, this is what the text means. Now, the implications of that, uh, that might be something where you think one thing, I think another thing. We're going we're gonna to think that, that, that the, the broader implications of that passage might, might, might be a little different uh, than, than you know, between you and I. And then certainly the way that we apply it, the significance to my life, it's going to be different. But the meaning should be the same. So we understand that there are appropriate disagreements in interpretation that surround these interplays. You'll have a fill-in on this next one. Bad interpretation. Bad interpretation rejects or ignores these concepts in order to pursue an interpretive agenda. So bad interpretation is when I say, I want to say that it's okay that women are pastors. So I'm going to take those several passages of Scripture that say women should not usurp authority over man and women should not teach in the church, and I am going to twist them and contort them and confuse them to, to, means, to, to say that they mean something they don't mean or to say that there was a unique circumstance in one church that Paul was writing to where that was the case instead of understanding that this was a command of God so that I can allow a woman to teach, right? And that is what we want to avoid. This is what we need to look out for. And that's why we learn this stuff. We learn this stuff so that when, bad, when an interpretation comes up, when you're sitting in a church and some pastor says something and, and you say, whoa, what? How did he get that out of this passage? You have the capability to take, take these principles, open your Bible, read the passage that he's talking about in context, 
use the norms of language as best you can understand it to read that passage, to interpret that passage, and then to determine whether or not this person is telling you what the Bible actually says or whether or not he's trying to take the Bible and twist it to mean something that it doesn't mean for the sake of proving a point that he can't otherwise prove or to validate something that shouldn't be validated. Other things as we continue here, um, the complications that come with translation. This is something else we need to think about here. The complications that come with translation. Uh, it's actually a pretty big deal to, to move something from one language to another. If you, uh, and, and you all know that, right? You've all gotten instruction manuals that have been translated from the Chinese place where, where, where the, the, the thing was, was manufactured to you, right? And you're trying to read in English this, you're trying to put together this, you know, this weight set and, and it's, it's written in English, sort of, but it's actually written in, you know, they, they, they popped their Chinese into Google Translator and just printed that on the page and it's, it's really hard to read because of this interplay between the Chinese language and, and English. It, it's not something that you can just throw into a computer. Now it's getting better, right? Google Translate's getting pretty good and all of that. But the fact of the matter is there's still a tremendous uh, a difficulty. You have to have someone that's very familiar, not just with the words. I mean, and I think we used this last week, right? If, if I say it's raining cats and dogs, how are you going to translate that into Chinese? If I just put it's raining cats and dogs into a Google Translate and send that to some Chinese person, uh, Google might do a really good job at taking each word and putting that word into Chinese, but it's not going to be able to necessarily, I don't know, maybe they can today, translate, identify it as an idiom, translate the idiom into the new language. So there's a lot of things when you get into this, one language to another, that, that can complicate understanding, right? Because the Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. And not like the Greek that they speak over in Greece today, not even like the Hebrew that they speak over in Israel today. Hebrew as a language died and was reinvented in the 1950s. It, it, was, it was black box re-engineered uh, from Hebrew manuscripts. The, it, it existed it through Yiddish, uh, through these hybrids of, of German, Jew, uh, German Hebrew, Russian Hebrew, Spanish Hebrew, but the language itself had completely died. And now it's been re re remade. Uh, you, then you have Greek. Well, the Greek of, of the Bible was what was called Koine Greek or Common Greek. It was what was appropriated by the Roman Empire at, at the time uh, for commerce. But that was, that's not the same Greek of Aristotle and Plato. If, if you go back to their Greek, that's called Classical Greek. And there's a lot of differences. And the Greek that they, that, that, that they speak today and that they read today, they could not open up a New Testament, a Greek New Testament, and just start reading it, even though they're Greek speakers. Just like we, as we mentioned last week, cannot just open a 1611 King James Bible and start reading it, because it was written in Old English. And Old English and our English are very, very, very different. And that's only a, a difference of, to this point, what, 400 years Imagine what a 2,000-year-old language is going to be like, right, in, in, in differences. So these complicate, trans, uh, complicate understanding as well as we try to 
take translations and give accurate translations of what was written so many years ago in a way that we can understand today. Historical context within which things are written. Uh, this is going to be a consideration for um, interpretation. We talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, when, when you think of Paul, when he writes in Romans, submit yourself to every authority, submit yourself to, to, to the government. And, um, you know, you, you could naturally, you know, we, we Americans are a rebellious bunch. And the idea of submitting ourselves to government, this wholesale command, is a tough one. And so there's a lot of things that we could do. We could say, well, you know, certainly you submit yourself to your government when they're, when they're obeying biblical principles, but it, Paul couldn't have meant submit yourself to government when the government is seeking to uh, destroy your natural rights and this and that. And I don't want to get into a debate about government tonight, but then if you impose historical context on that teaching in Romans, you understand that at the time that this was happening, the, 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 the Roman government was imprisoning Christians. Right. Christianity was not an okay thing at that time. I mean, there were, you know, there were areas where churches were functioning and things were fine, but Paul was writing that to the Christians in Rome, and he ends his life in house arrest in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down uh, at the sanction of the Roman government. Jesus was crucified at the sanction of the Roman government. And this is the government that Paul is saying to submit yourself to. Submit yourself to every ordinance. And so the historical context gives us a frame of reference within which to understand the implications of what Paul is saying. Is he just saying, submit yourself to government when government identifies uh, proper moral biblical principles and, and is, is asking you to follow them? No, he's not. Now, the broader, significance, uh, the broader implications and significance of that, there's going to be disagreement about. And there's a lot of valid reasons for that disagreement uh, and then where each of us plays out. So, then, so you've got the people um, that, that end up on one spectrum, which is uh, we're just going to do what the government says. And then you've got other people that say, no, 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 no. There is a time, and this was what the revolutionaries believed, where God-given rights trump the, the government's attempts to interfere with it. And there is a place, there is a point where God blesses a people that would seek to come outside from underneath the tyranny of an oppressive government. And, and both of those can be argued. But we can't argue them by misinterpreting the text. We need to go to the text, say what was meant at the time it was written, what does this mean? Okay, now how can we apply that? And, and if our disagreement's got to be anywhere, it's got to be there. Uh, the character and the circumstances of the writers. Peter writes differently than Paul writes. Um, they're writing perhaps to different audiences and such as well. And so all of that comes into play. Um, questions about this before we move on to kind of our last topic here? Or thoughts? So you just explain why I'm so confused for all this. I didn't realize that the old Chinese actually wrote our computer language. The more you know, right? <laughs> Um, that must have been it. That must have been it. It was. It was. It was when. It was when. Uh, when the founders put the Constitution into Google Translate, that uh, that that everything got ruined. No, but uh, um, it, it it is amazing though how much of the debate is about words, right? The meaning of words, and how that applies to today. But it's somewhat of a disingenuous debate if we are willing to say 
what did it mean then? And then what do we do with that now? That's where a debate becomes valid. Not what does it mean then, but what, what well, do we do with it now? I mean, it's also no different than like what, what's the motivating factor for why you're interpreting it that way. I mean, that's why yep. like, the liberals look at the Constitution and they interpret it completely upside down. And it's the same, but, but there's a motive there. Right. right? That's why they're reading it that way. Their interpretation, frankly, doesn't seem to even relate to it. No, and it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. And that's why right. I'm saying like with this, like, the interpretation of this generally shouldn't be driven by any motive. No. And well, justifies something or behavior or sin or whatever. But it depends kind of on what people want to believe. Well, and this is why we need to be loyal to the Word of God, right? Not to an ideology, not to a denomination. If we are, if 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 we hold loyalties above the Word of God and just knowing what the Word of God says, then we we are going. And you you read that we had that quote last week from Soren Kierkegaard, right, about the the function of biblical scholarship, which is to take the plain truths of the New Testament and contort them so that we can continue to sin while saying we believe the Bible. And if our motives are impure, it's going to happen every time. Yeah. Were how they work or whatever moving forward, but now the other generation. Well, so so we're seeing that right now, particularly with the millennials, that the millennials are really big on socialism because they've not been taught anything else, right? They they were not around for the Cold War, but they've not been taught about the dangers. And they haven't even come close to fighting a war. Right, and and so yeah. Right. Other than you know, well, you know, there there were the ones in Afghanistan. Right, right, and especially because the particular wars that we've had. I mean, really, going all the way back to Vietnam, the the United States' goals in war have been so muddied. Right. There, there's been no even Korea. There's been no like objective. This we do this and win. They've actually stopped. The objectives from being able to take place. They've, yeah, be, and because of that, there is this tremendous fuzzy thing as it relates to even those that have fought. And maybe that's why they don't understand Trump and that he says, "I'm That's that's a possibility. And there's some other things, uh, you know, that that we could talk about related to Trump and and this this concept of 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 winning that um, have taken have really put millennials off. Uh, based upon their philosophy and the way they're raised. But what's interesting is that, see, we've, we had this gap, right, where people trusted the school system, and then there was this really heavy gap where um, people didn't understand what socialism and communism was because, you know, Cold War's over and everything. And then, you, and, but, but they're still, they're learning in school now that, you know, that all this is good, that we, that we want socialism, that we want communism. Right, and they're not being taught the truth. But now we have this amazing thing called the internet, right? Most education is not, from, from, from probably about five years ago on, what we're finding is that most education is actually not done in school. School is becoming semi-useless. Um, it, it is becoming a babysitting organization and an indoctrination organization. Uh, companies are beginning to realize that, that 
uh, if they hire people that have college degrees that uh, these people are entitled, that they expect uh, they, they don't want to work up the, the ladder, right? A lot of them don't even, they have to do all the on-the-job training anyway because, you know, they spent all of their time in school partying and being an idiot. And, and so you still have to train them. And they're entitled and, and thinking that they should be able to step out and get their, get, get, you know, start at the top and, and not have to work their way up in an organization. And then they're easily offended and they don't handle authority well. And so people are starting to realize that, well, maybe it is that, that I want the, you know, the, the self-starters. They don't have to have got, they, they, the degree is not as important anymore as maybe it used to be to businesses to see, right? And we're, I think we're gonna see more of that. I, I can get online and I can watch, I can watch classes from Harvard on YouTube. Professors teaching any number of subjects. I can, uh, they, they've got free Bible classes from Dallas Theological Seminary from, from a lot of major seminaries that I can just sit down on YouTube and watch anytime I want. And if all of, these, uh, if all of the, this information is available on this public forum where I can learn so many different things without having to put the time, the money, and uh, the, the, the waste of time really that, that education is becoming, um, what you're going to find is while obviously K-12 education is not going away anytime soon, um, a great deal of people's education is going to be found through the internet and the, the voices for reason are starting to really bubble up to the top as it relates to the internet, which is why there's all these scandals about Google, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter censoring conservative speech, right? Why are they doing that? Because they for the last several decades have had such a hold on the information power and power, right? They have had a hold on those institutions. They have had a hold on, on all uh, amusement. Hollywood is you know, entirely leftist. They've had a hold on primarily the news institutions. They've had a hold on the schools. The schools, uh, universities are just completely filled with Marxists and you know, that filters down through through uh, to the, the, the teachers uh, at lower levels today. So you've got all of this and they've had a hold of these for so long and now there's this, there's this open forum where the ideas that are co contrary to these Marxist and progressivist ideas are now able to take root. And to that end, really, conservatives kind of own social media and conservatives kind of own YouTube. Uh, the, the number of hits and views on conservative media outlets and, and uh, such on YouTube grossly outstrip liberal, which is why they are now seeking to censor, to, to call it fake news, right? And then to, to downgrade it in an attempt to maintain the standard and the historical um, institutions of power in their grasp. So I think, though, that un until they uh, censor the internet, which you know will happen eventually, but until they hit that point where internet is censored, um, that's how that's where the balance is going to come from. The balance is going to come from all of these kids who grow up, and naturally, there's going to be a disadvantage to truth because they're listening to all of their teachers indoctrinate them for all of these years. But then the truth is actually able to get out there now, uh, and and you know it, it's it's no. You, you don't have to wait on, on MSNBC or CNN to tell you what's happening in Venezuela anymore. 
you can go to any number of news outlets that will actually report on what happened when Venezuela went so, went full on socialist and how uh, it, one of the most oil rich nations in the world and thus one of the wealthiest nations in the world was absolutely tanked in, in a, as little as a decade uh, through their socialist policies and now the rich got richer and everyone else got you know is is completely poor in, in a nation that ought to have tremendous wealth on the basis of their oil so you know it, it's getting out and I think that there will be a balance there. Uh, for at least a little while, and then we'll have to see what happens. What 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 will be the next move? At what point will will um, yeah? It will, at what point will Google, Facebook, and such completely sell out to their leftist ideologies? And then what's going to happen? Uh, will people wholesale leave these? Uh, it's going to open up a market for some other search engine, some other uh, social media site that's not going to censor to bubble up to the top. There already are those um, that, that have started. Um, there's one called Mastodon, which, which is a decentralized t- Twitter. Um, and it's kind of overrun right now by um, crazies. But, but if, if you know, enough people were to get on it, then, then things would, would level out and whatnot. And it allows a decentralized, non-censoring type way of doing it. Sure. Well, I, I suppose it's possible, but I would hope, you know, if that happens, where there's almost like a segregation, right, where where you can choose this path or this path, um, then uh, that that would be a really bad thing in this sense. I, I believe it would be a really bad thing because um, you know Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand, and if we start to institutionalize the divisions, if we start to institutionalize the divisions, to where we say yes, we are going to have two completely divisive courses, and you can you know you you could transfer from one to the other, but we are only going to give you, if I can say it this way, one side of the story. So now, if, if, if you've heard talk about the, you know, the, the liberal and the conservative echo chambers, right? That people, they, they drift to a certain opinion and then the only thing that they listen to are things that comply with their opinion and they never get outside of that. And this is why the media is what it is because these people live in New York and they're in a complete echo chamber in their city, they're in a complete echo chamber in their business, and they simply are so out of touch with the standard American that they think what, they, what they're saying is, is real. Yeah, but isn't some of this already going on? I mean, you know, we've got the homeschoolers. They yep. think that they've chosen you know, their road that they're going to go. Yep. And they're pulled out of there because they don't like the direction of the public school they're going. Right. Uh, yeah. So you're seeing that division well, right, but, but the, the, while there is a division of method, right, so public school versus homeschool, and a lot of the homeschoolers say it's because I, either because they don't trust the public education system to do anything proper or because they don't want the extra 
progressive uh, stuff. You know, I don't want my children learning about STDs in third grade. I don't want my children in sex ed at third grade. Uh, that, that's ridiculous um, that my children should have to have that. I don't want them being introduced to homosexuality and transgenderism in kindergarten, which is what they're trying to push now uh, in, in the school systems, that kindergartners are learning about these things. I don't want that, so I, I don't put my kids there. So yes, there is that, but at the same time, um, if I'm a good parent, see, the, the solution is not for me to simply put my children into my echo chamber, right? The solution is for me to say, I'm going to get you out of their echo chamber so that I can teach you everything. So that I can, I can tell you this is what we believe, this is what the Bible says, and then in the appropriate time I can talk to them about these issues and, and help them say this is what they believe, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it, this is what they say. Listen to that person, read the article, read the book, and, and then read the Bible, and then understand where we're coming from. Know, know the other side. And, and see, the echo chamber says we don't even know the other side. The other side is just the enemy. So because the other side is just the enemy, you know, now we have this sort of a state in this country where Cory Booker can get up as a senator and say that anyone who supports Judge Kavanaugh is evil. Like He, he used the word evil of anyone who would believe that Judge Kavanaugh should be confirmed. So he has just said that I am an evil man. And he said Judge Kavanaugh is an evil man. And, and whether or not we want to chalk that up to hyperbole or whatever it is, if, if we just get into our own echo chambers where I literally see half of the country as evil because they don't agree with me, and if we institutionalize those echo chambers to where we are only going to teach one side, as it were, and, and then the other side, we don't, we're, we're, you know, they're wrong and they're evil, uh, then we get ourselves into a bad spot. And even if we don't start with that intention, we're not going to call them evil. We're just going to say they're wrong and, and whatnot. But it's going to eventually be, it's going gonna, it, it's gonna to eventually get there because there's such a disparity between what I believe and what they believe. And, 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 and it's just going to get farther and farther apart. I think what, what, what I would like to see, what I believe would be the best solution, is if we finally get back to just telling things as they are, and then allowing people to come to their own conclusions. So if the news, instead of saying, instead of uh, uh, the, you know, CNN and these, these, uh, these news sources, uh, even Fox, uh, who you know, rightfully so took fair and balanced off of their motto several years ago because they, have, they were announcing that they are now a partisan, uh, you know, they, they are going to interpret things through the lens of their own bias, right? Uh, which is fine. We all have our we all we all have our own bias. But if we could get to the p place where the news simply says this is what happened, instead of President Trump offends uh, you know off uh, uh, offends a woman, uh, President Trump shows his 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 uh, racism again. Just say what President Trump said and let people come to their own conclusion. And instead of the other end of the spectrum, you know, the conservative end saying. President, you know, President Trump is attacked by liberals again for what he said. Just say what President Trump said. If everyone just said what was happening, if the news and schools can get back to just saying what is, then we'd be in an okay place. Of course, the, the likelihood of that happening is unlikely, 
because we are in a place where you have you have people that genuinely believe that a man can be a woman that a biological man can be a woman simply because he thinks he's a woman and when you have uh, and, and, and this comes down to um, what we talked about last week where one of the, the first things that we talked about right is was truth that there is objective truth this is why okay Thanksgiving's coming up right and Thanksgiving is that dreaded time of year when politics is, is life in America because you get to sit down with all of your, your relatives that don't agree with you and everyone gets to fight around the Thanksgiving table, right? And the problem is this. We are fighting a battle of ideas, but we're not even on the same playing field. We're not even defining our terms the same way. In other words, a person says, well, it's so uh, transphobic of you to say that a man, a biological man, can't become a woman. Well, wh wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's define our terms here. What is a man? Can, can, we, can we settle on a definition of what a man is and what a woman is? See, because you're, you, you might have a different definition of what a man is than I. I'm going to go into a biological book and I'm going to say XX chromosome woman, XY chromosome man. I am going to go to an anatomy book and say certain body parts, man, certain body parts, woman. I am going to go to the Bible and say he has made them male and female. That's my definition. Now, what's your definition? See, and, and, and they're going to say something different. Okay, now we need to come down to it. Is there such thing as truth? And that's where you should be debating at the Thanksgiving table. You should not be debating whether or not transgenderism is valid because that's going to get you nowhere because the person on the other side of that conversation does not even believe that truth exists. If they believe that objective truth exists, there's no way they would look at a biological man and say he can just will himself to being a woman. But they do not believe that objective truth exists. But if you cannot come to an agreement about objective truth, then you're just whistling in the wind with the rest of the stuff. How am I ever going to convince a person that, that a biological man cannot become a woman if they don't believe that there's such thing as truth? I don't, I, we're not even standing on the same foundation. We're, we're, we're reading a different dictionary. We, we, we are not, when, when I say the word man and when I say the word woman, it, I'm not defining it the way they are. This is why the norms of language and the understanding of truth. So, so we're talking about this as it relates to the Bible, but everything that I've already given you, and we've, we've gotten not very far tonight, but everything I've given you doesn't just apply to the Bible, does it? This applies to every element of disagreement. And, and so when people say we need to find common ground, this is, this, this is what that should not mean. Common ground should not necessarily mean that we kind of try to dig down to a place where we can agree on an issue. Finding common ground should be, can we, under, can, can we agree that there's such thing as truth? Like something that is true no matter what I feel or think. And if they say no, it's not even worth talking to you then. It's literally not worth talking to you. If, you. if you are not willing to say that something can be true whether I like it or not, that, my, that truth is not completely dependent upon opinion, then, then we're, I guarantee you we're not going to get anywhere in, in any sort of a conversation. 
Because I can, I can give you evidence all day, right? I can put statistics in front of you. I can put whatever it is in front of you, and it's not going to change your mind if you don't believe in truth. And then the next thing is, can we... Okay, so if they believe in truth, if they believe that 2 plus 2 does equal 4, and that regardless of whether or not I feel like 2 plus 2 equals 4 today, because I want, I want 5 cookies, but I, I, I said I'll only have 2 plus 2 cookies, but I want 5 cookies, so I'm going to say 2 plus 2 equals 5 today so that I can have 5 cookies, because that's how I feel today. Right? This is, this is kind of what's happening in, in, in discourse today. If I, if, 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 but if we can agree that 2 plus 2 always equals 4, even if that offends me, even if that means I can't have my cookie, then the next step is, can we agree to define what a cookie is? So that when I say, I'm going to have four cookies today, and then I go and I get four packages of cookies and I eat them all. And, and, and so my, my wife was expecting me to eat four cookies and I ate four packages because I have redefined the term cookie to mean what I want it to mean. So after we understand that there is such thing as truth, the next thing is let's normalize our language. Let's define our terms. Let's understand, you need to understand what I mean when I say cookie. And I need to understand what you mean, what you understand a cookie to be. Oh, wow, what a waste of time having to go through all of this. That's right. That's why civilization builds up over time, right? So that we can sit on the precedent of, of, of hundreds of years of civilization so that we don't have to go through this rigmarole every time. But when the argument becomes disingenuous, then I have to start all the way back at the beginning. And I build from the bottom up. And I build from, from, from the basic to the complicated so that what I am communicating can be received in like fashion. And so that's, that's what I'd like to see in this country. What would I like to see with education? What would I like to see with politics? What would I like to see with news? I'd like for us to just come to the point where we're, we're all so sick of it that the, uh, outside of the extremists on both ends, all of those centrists, all of those people in the middle that just say, I'm sick of this, I'm exhausted, I'm ready for some sort of communication here, my hope is that they will all just say, look, politics, schools, we're going to quit trying to pump ideologies and we're just going to start, we're going to find a basis again of communication and then we're going to let people's ideologies form from that basis. But uh, is that going to happen because of the fact that we're, we're not even agreeing that there is truth anymore? Very unlikely. So what's the, what's the most likely path um, or, or perhaps the best alternative? Kind of like what you said, Chuck. Um, but I don't think that we can, I, what, what I don't think we can do is I don't think we can be one nation that has two echo chambers. I think, um, I think there needs to be an amicable divorce. And that's not going to happen either. Well, right, and that's where the church has failed. Because if, if the church was doing its job of reaching out to culture, then that corridor of thought would have already been defined. In other words, you know, if, if, if I regard there to be a moral authority higher than myself that has already settled all of, this, all, all of the basics for me, 
and then it's my job just to take that and to to apply it to life and society and whatnot, then then we're we're fine. There's a corridor of thought, yeah, but, but the, because the church has failed at that, there's a void. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just not uh, being taught. Uh, Muddied, yeah. Right, well, right. But, but, but people have to hear it first. And that's where the church has really failed. And not just because the, 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 church, isn't, the church isn't getting people to hear it, but because, once again, the church has also been sucked into this mess of not, of not agreeing on what the Bible says, right? Denominations. Yep. Yeah. Well, because now the church refuses to agree with itself, and it's splintered in any you know hundred hundreds of factions, and so the church can't get on the same page. And if the church can't get on the same page, then the church is not going to be effective. Or we'll just make it say what we want it to say. Well, right. And, and each one is doing that, which is why we keep splitting. Well, isn't that? I mean, that is one thing the Catholic Church has done a great job of is staying united on that was the intent of the Catholic Church. Yeah, That's why they, they were instituted. They have done a very good job of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying they're doing a great job of everything, but that is something that they've done a very good job of. And, and that is the argument of the Catholic Church, is that um, God intended a unified church. And, and this was, going back to the early church, this was a desire, and that's why the Catholic Church was formed. And we're having some problems with our new pope. But oh, yeah, the new pope is a nutcase. You guys don't like him, well, he's a he's he's a, a complete social justice warrior, eco warrior, and whatnot. And he really, uh, you know, there's a huge scandal about pedophilia in the church that has bubbled up again. And a lot of that, the the Pope covered for that, and um, did uh, and and uh, people that were censured by former Pope have been brought back into power by this Pope because he didn't care. Uh, there, and, and just he's trying to provide grace and mercy to people who make mistakes, or is it? There, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. <laughs> but, uh, right, and and so there's you know there, there's a disagreement there. And then one of the you know one of the bishops I think it was said, we don't need to focus on this because we're getting so much other stuff done. Like we're advocating for the environment and we're doing these things. So effectively, the idea was don't worry about the fact that bishops are are, are pedophiles because we finally have a pope that is pushing eco fascism and is pushing communism and we finally have that pope that's going to do these things so we need to not worry about these other little things like pedophilia in the church you know and uh, it's it's become quite a mess um, but so yes that that was the intent of the catholic church but there's also a real danger in the way that it happened over over history as we can see how the Catholic Church ebbed and flowed leading up to the Reformation and, the, and then the Counter-Reformation with the Jesuits and the way that it all played out um, showed a fundamental flaw in a top-down hierarchical model because what that did not allow for is it did not allow the, 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 the complexity of the church did not allow for it to become self-correcting. 
which is what the Reformation attempted to do. But because of the church, it, because the, and because the church got so intertwined with the state, when, the, when a corrupt man gets to the top, it filters down. And there's no, break, there's no stopping it. There's no breaking it. And so the filter of corruption comes through, which is what the 95 Theses that Luther nailed on the door in Wittenberg were all about. Oh, yeah. All the way back to the 1800s. John Dewey, the father of modern education, outright communist, out, evil man, believed in, in eugenics, believed in killing the, the lesser races, was full-on Darwinian evolution, neo-Marxist craziness. And, and what they said is we're never going to get those into the public schools, but if we overtake the university. So he's, he is, is elected as the chancellor of, of Yale or Harvard or whichever one it was. And then he starts hiring all, these, uh, all of these, these, corrupt these corrupt professors. And they're teaching the next generation of school teachers. And then they're teaching the next generation. And so they filter down from the universities through the school systems. And then you add to that, of course, the, the Hollywood, what Hollywood has done. Yep. 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 And 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 the worst thing that ever happened was the um, the uh, was it the NEA, NEA is that the National Education Association NEA? It, well, it, so so the 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 federally uh, um, the federally instituted education association right. What that did, so, so the reason why America was incubated from these, these horrible policies for so long is because local schools were so local. So you had people that were teaching in the communities and they were a part of the community and they were more invested in their community and their community's values than they were invested in an ideology and there was a protection. But then when they elected this, this, this mass organization that now controls all schools, right? The more federal they make the school system, the more that, that, that you know, t right now each state is still allowed to choose their own curriculum, right? But if they do a federally mandated curriculum like Common Core, right? That's what, that's what Common Core was. Now it's stripping more power from the states, which is also stripping more power from local governments. And that decentralized nature of local governments Choosing their schools, choosing when to build their schools, choosing who their teachers are going to be, uh, people electing who's going to be on the school board from their communities. This is protection. I mean, this is why enumerated powers was a thing in the Constitution, right? We have protections, and some of those protections have already been dissolved. Now they're trying to get rid of the Electoral College, and the Electoral College is a huge protection, a huge protection that, that is put in place in a federal system to protect from tyranny. And the more, the more a, a top-down organization strips rights from the individuals that are living in these communities, the more corruption takes place and the more there's this, this open flow of corruption from, to, from top to bottom. Which is one of the reasons why in the Protestant Reformation decentralization happened. Because now if I go bad, my church might corrupt. But that's not going to touch any other Baptist church in Minnesota or in the United States except maybe through my internet ministry, but I, my, my church is incubated from corruption because I'm not beholden to some corrupt person somewhere else in Minnesota or somewhere else in the United States. But then there is on, there's this, this, this 
catch-22, right? Because while there is that safety in decentralization, what there also is is disunity. And that disunity is not because uh, necessarily we don't have one institutional church. That's the, that's the Catholic theory is that the in order to solve disunity, you need one strong institutionalized church. Well, no. In order to solve disunity, we need one common philosophy, which is the Bible is true. And if that's true, then me as a pastor and another church who is not beholden to me and I'm not beholden to them, but we can still have complete agreement and fellowship because we both believe the same but thing. Even within the Bible, churches disagree. Well, right. And, and this is what we come to. For what reasons? Now, there are those valid disagreements. And that's why different churches matter. We have 18 churches in Buffalo. 15,000 people, 18 churches. Not a good thing. But there are churches that disagree with my church on music. Right? There's churches that say we, we, we're going to allow a more contemporary worship style. I'm not comfortable having that in my church. I don't look at them and say they are dirty, rotten, wicked, evil people. It's just they, they, you have something that, that I don't want in church and we have something you don't want in church. And there's a, there's a point where you have to just get over it. But there's also a point where it says we can come together in the unity of the Spirit and agree on doctrine and have fellowship but also worship separately on Sunday. But then the problem is then you get the churches that say, okay, that music is just the devil's music, right? And, and, and I, you know, last, in the last class, I, I formed some links that can show how you can get to that point. And that is of the devil and the people that follow that are not true Christians. And next thing you know, my church is calling that church a bunch of heretics and apostates, even though they believe a lot of the same things I believe, but they don't believe all of them. And then they get offended, and now the pendulums are swinging in opposite directions, right? And now we are splintering the church. So what do we have today? We have a whole wing of the church that really loves the, the, the power of the Spirit of God, the charismatics, right? And then we have a wing of the church that really, really loves the, the authority of Scripture, and that would be mainline evangelicalism. Uh, well, let's call it conservative evangelicalism. Mainline is kind of go, going, going off the rails. But conservative evangelicalism. They say the Bible is our anchor. And, and the charismatics say the, the, the Spirit has power. Are both of those true? Yes. But because of the, this discomfort with that and that discomfort with this, the charismatics have now rejected biblical truth. So they, 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 they take the concept of the spiritual gifts and they have taken it in a direction that is provably anti-biblical. Like, prove, like I can open a chapter and verse and show you how the majority of churches that speak in tongues are offending the word of God in the way that they're doing it. And then I can go to the other end and I can... I can see people that take the Word of God and say, you know, we, we follow the Word of God, but they completely deny any power of the Spirit. And I can take you to chapter and verse and show how they're effectively taking the Bible and, and elevating it to the third person of the Trinity rather than connecting it to the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the Word of God. They deny the Spirit entirely. They, they don't listen to Him. They're not led by Him. They don't talk about Him in their churches. And I could go to chapter and verse and prove how that is explicitly anti-biblical. But what has happened is because this group is not the same as this group and there's differences between us, instead of taking those differences, coming together, having a foundation of truth, and then coming to a general place of at least comfort, if not full agreement, and functioning as one unit, we're now splintered. And here's the thing. 
both of these are so necessary in the church and they need to work together if we're going to win the loss to Christ, if we're going to have power. And they're not working together because they're so, now they've both gone so unbiblical that the other ones are now heretics. And that's the, that's the danger. That's but the I mean, splinter. Point, yes, sir. You feel like some, sometimes people are just splitting hairs? Absolutely. Like through and through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely splitting hairs. But, but the, it, the, to them, it's not splitting hairs. Well, right. It's, it, they, they are, it is an absolute conviction to them. And this is where teaching has to come in. So I've got a family in my church. They, uh, they showed up a couple of years ago. And um, this family, now I'm a, we're a very conservative church, we're a family-oriented church. This is not actually unusual for our church, but they come in and they've got, they've got eight kids now. All their girls, they've never worn pants in their life. Only skirts. And skirts down to their toenails. Okay? Long hair. They don't cut their hair. Long hair, long skirts, homeschool family, um, no TV, no, you know, no, no video games, no TV, no movies, nothing. Like they don't own, I don't own a television either, but, and, 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 but, but like no, nothing on the computer, nothing, right? They are just, poof. and when they came to our church, it was, these are biblical commands that we are conforming to. Now, over time, through my teaching, they recognize that what that is called is legalism. That what they have done is they have elevated what are fine standards. It is fine for them to live that way, but they've elevated it to where if you don't live that way, there's something wrong with you with God. So now what they've done is they've balanced out, and they can, they can give, and I can give them too, all of the virtues of that, of that way of living. And there are legitimate virtues to that. No screens. Women dressing like women and elevating the, the concept of biblical femininity. Um, uh, the, the idea of long hair on women is connected to the idea of women in head coverings and having power over the, on their heads. And it's a sign of submission and proper, proper orientation to the, the biblical authorities in their life. And all of that is okay. Absolutely okay. As long as they're not trying to say, I'm sinning for not having that same standard. And so they can now be in our church, and my wife wears pants, but we will not, my wife will not wear pants over to their house. And this comes down to another principle called the weaker brethren principle, which is that if I identify in my life a freedom that I have in Christ, but someone else feels as though they don't have that freedom and, and is offended in conscience by that freedom because they're what's called the weaker brethren, and this is not a derogatory term, it just means that their conscience is more sensitive. If I cause them to, if, if, if I, so if I go up to them, and I, I go up to one of these young girls, and I say, look, you don't have to be in skirts all the time. Wear a, a feminine, modest, loose, not form-fitting pant so that you can be a little more active today. You know, we're, we're going to be, uh, we went over to their house on Monday and cut a bunch of wood. And those girls were out there in their skirts hauling wood, right? Put on some pants so that you can haul and, and so that you're not going to catch it on the, on, on the twigs and the sticks and whatnot. Just go ahead and, and, and put on a pair of pants. And if they do that, feeling as though it's wrong, they have sinned. They have sinned. Because what, what the Bible tells us in the Weaker Brethren Principle is whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Which means if, so, so uh, this is how the scenario plays out. Wow, we're way off topic. This is how the scenario plays out though, okay? This is how the scenario plays out. I believe that wearing green shoes is a sin, right? That's what I believe. Green shoes, that is sinful. So I 
am talking to someone else and they're like, look, dude, green shoes are not sinful. Just put on a pair of green shoes. Well, I don't, I, I don't, I, I love you and I, I know that you know the Bible well too, but I, I don't think it's right to wear green shoes. Look, just put on a pair of green shoes. It's not, it's not a sin. There's nowhere in the Bible that says green shoes are a sin. Just put on a pair of green shoes. And I say, okay, and I, thinking that I am doing something wrong, put on the pair of green shoes. And now I'm walking around with green shoes, believing that it's a sin. What is in my heart at the time of that, of, of me walking around in those green shoes? What is, what is in my heart at that moment? Defiance. Defiance. Against who? So whether or not it is actually defiance and rebellion, in my heart is the intent to rebel against God. Right? I am doing something I think is wrong, which means in my heart is rebellion. Whether or not the action itself is wrong, my heart is full of rebellion in doing something I think is wrong and being willing to do it. That's a rebellious heart. So, even though it's not sin biblically, it is sin to me. And this is why Jesus can tell the Pharisees, Thou hast heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, If any man hates a brother in his heart, he's committed murder already. Why? Because regardless of what action I'm doing, if in my heart is filled with murderous thoughts, then in my heart there is sin. There is something that is contrary to God. Right? Does that make sense? The weaker brethren principle. So what Paul teaches is this. Those that are not weak are actually obligated to the conscience of the weaker brethren. Now, what does that mean? And what does that not mean? What it does not mean is, um, you know, this family does not believe that, that women should wear pants. What it does not mean is that now I have to go to my wife and say, hey, look, there's a family in our church that doesn't believe women should wear pants, so you're never allowed to wear pants. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that I look at my wife and say, when we go over to their house, because, or when they come over to our house to protect their conscience, I want you to put a skirt on. And my wife does that because I am protecting their conscience. And if at some point their conscience changes and they say, you know what, we realize that this is not what, you know, what it was and whatnot, then my wife can wear pants. Or if they show up unexpected and my wife is in a pair of pants, I'm not going to feel bad about that because... We didn't expect it. We're not trying to offend them. And my wife, depending on the circumstance, might run up and put a skirt on to make them more comfortable. So what we see in the scriptures as it relates to this principle, um, let, let me get there just, just a moment. I'll let, you, I'll let you process all of this stuff that is absolutely not within the scope of our curriculum while I'm, uh, while I'm finding it. That's right. <laughs> so this is what Paul says. Him that is weak in faith receive. Receive ye. What is this? Hang on. Let me see what's sticking out here. Okay. It's just bothering me. Him that is weak in the faith. And what that means is him that has this sensitive conscience. Receive, but not to doubtful disputations. But not, don't receive him so that you can fight with him and convince him that he's wrong. Receive him as he is. For one believeth that he may eat all things. 
Another who is weak eats herbs. So there's one person that says, we can eat meat. It doesn't matter. It's good. Another says, hey, back before Noah's flood, they were only allowed to eat you know, fruits and vegetables, plants. So I believe it's right that we should go back to the, the, the Eden days. So he says, one believes you can eat, eat all things. The other believes you can only eat herbs. Let not him that eats, don't let him that eats the meat, the one with what we call the stronger conscience, don't let him that eats the meat despise him that doesn't. Don't look at them and be like, look at those people. They, don't, they won't let their, you know, they, they wear skirts and long hair. Those, those, those people, they just don't get it. They're just ignorant. They're just immature. They don't understand the Bible. Don't despise them. And then he says, let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. So it's just as wrong if the person says, well, look at pastor. He lets his wife wear, wear pants. They're, he must be horrible. He must be evil. He must be, he, he must be completely uh, uh, a, a, you know, rebellious against the word of God because he lets his wife wear pants. I, cannot, I should not despise them for their weak conscience and they should not judge me for my strong conscience. And this is something that the church cannot figure out. This is something that the church simply cannot figure out. That, and and um, th- that was Romans 14, by the way, if you want to study it out. And there's, a couple, uh, there's another passage in 1 Corinthians that speaks of it as well. But um, as Paul continues here, he says, um, he talks about meat and whatnot. Um, let me see if it's in this one or if it's in 1 Corinthians. He talks about each man esteeming uh, another better than himself, that we ought to care more about the other person than us. Um, verse 22 and 23 are important. He says, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Are you okay with your wife wearing pants? Okay, let her wear pants before God. But, and blessed is the man that doesn't hold himself under guilt for the things that God has allowed you to do. But, don't offend another believer in Christ in order to stand on your liberty, in order to stand for your rights and your freedoms in Christ. Don't offend a brother. Don't offend, it's not worth that. Stay unified. Why? For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's why. Because it is sin to them if you compel them to do something that they don't believe is right because what you're doing is you are encouraging them to foster and to to. to, to allow the rebellion that would be in their heart if they feel willing to do this to, to come to pass. Which means I'm literally encouraging them to sin. Even if I'm actually trying to get them to figure out that it's not sin. Um, the, the one in 1 Corinthians, which let me just find real quick, um, uh, talks more about how important it is that the, the strong in faith, the ones that believe they have freedom, bind themselves to the conscience of the weak. Um, uh, it's about the one concerning meat. Where is it? Hmm. Maybe it's 2 Corinthians. Maybe that's why I'm not finding it. Uh, 
First Corinthians eight. Yeah, I don't have Greg here to Google it for me tonight. Yes. Yep. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. Um, take heed, verse 9. Thank you, John. Lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. We are to bind ourselves to the conscience of the weak and take care not to hurt or harm or offend them, even if that means stripping myself of some freedoms in their presence. That doesn't mean I can't go home and watch that movie. It just means that I am not going to do it with them. I'm not going to do something that is going to cause them to have angst because I love them too much. If you have a buddy who's uh, maybe in recovery or something and he comes over to your house, don't bust out this guy. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and, and that is exactly it. You know, don't, don't, don't bring out the alcohol if you've got a buddy in recovery or if you have someone that doesn't you know that 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 doesn't, doesn't that or, or and and you know doesn't drink if he's okay with other people drinking that's one thing but if he's offended by drink I've got a kid my a guy in my church who who is so averse to alcohol that he will not even go to a restaurant that serves it how ridiculous would it be for me how offensive would it be for me to invite him out say hey I want to take you out to eat and then take him to a place that serves alcohol that would be that would just uh, come on it, we, we're not even going to be at the bar just get over it, kid. Well, no. No, don't get over it. If that is a, an extension of his faith, and I, I, you know, he, can, he, he can defend his thought, why, why should I? Okay. What restaurants, what, what restaurants don't serve alcohol? I have no idea. I'll take him to McDonald's. Uh, yeah, Perkins maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah IHOP maybe. You know, uh, is that, are those up here? I don't know that IHOP's up here. Kind of forgot you were there, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> we need to put a Tom face up, like like on the speaker. Yeah, we could do that too. But uh, so so yeah, we're we're a bit off topic. But boy, I okay. So yeah, we're talking about the splintering of the church, right? And the, these are things because the church people are proud, and they don't want to do that. They don't want to go out of their way in love for a brother. And so instead we say, and this is what this is kind of, like I said, where the Catholic Church went wrong. They said, we're going to unify a lot around traditions rather than unifying around concepts. And then these other churches said, well, no, 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 we need to be unified in concept, but not in tradition. And they splintered, but now we're not either. Now we're not unified in concept or tradition. And we've, we're kind of in the worst of both worlds right now, where the church is splintered um, ideologically because now you have so many churches that have ignored this book in order to get more people in the seats or have ignored this book in order to follow some sort of philosophy of, of whatever. And then you've got the people that are, are holding fast to this book and they won't talk to each other. And there's so many good people in these churches where they're ignoring the book because uh, for whatever reason, you know, people go to these churches because they've got good programs or uh, they've always known it or they're comfortable there or whatever it might be. Or they, there's that one teacher that they really love and, and yet the whole philosophy of the church has problems. And then you've got these people that are really holding the fort and they're, they're, they're you know, reading the word of God literally and trying to do their best. To, to follow it literally, but that, you know, makes people grumpy um, because it offends their pride and all of these things. So the church is in a really, really bad way today. 
And the solution is, the only solution, of course, is revival, which is when the Spirit of God just works in the hearts of people unmasked to be brought back to a place, to be brought back to the, back to the foundation. In other words, when, when, when God's people all get brought back to the Bible. And to tell you the truth, the, the thing that is most likely going to do that is persecution. Because right now, it's pretty cool to be a Christian, right? It's pretty cool to be connected to one of these churches, and, and pastors make a lot of money today, and, and you've got you know, these celebrity pastors, and, and it's still a big cultural thing. But when it becomes hard to be a Christian, when being a Christian, when associating with, with the Bible, even in a, even in a loose way, means that people, you know, kind of like what Antifa does today, right? Uh, it means people are going to spit at you and they're going to run you out of restaurants and they're going to they're start to, uh, um, you know, you're not going to get a job because you're a Christian. And all the things that are kind of already starting to happen a little bit, when, when that happens in full, then it's not going to be the end thing anymore. And then the only people that are going to be left in the church are the people that really mean it. And once it's only the people that really mean it, then we'll find our unity. Persecution has always been one of the greatest. Persecution per- purifies the church. And right now the church is full of a bunch of weeds, false teachers, uh, false, fa- false believers, uh, because it's the end thing to do, because there's a lot of money in religion. Once all of that goes away, the church will be purified, and, and that's going to bring us back to, to the truth. Okay. Hmm. Uh, other thoughts on this since we're... Since we're here, hopefully it was edifying, if not uh, relevant. (laughs) Okay, the Bible, like nearly every effort at communication throughout history, is a willed document, not a living document. In other words, it had a meaning, and God intended it to mean something, and what matters is not what I perceive the Bible to mean, but what God meant, right? Which means, and the idea behind that is when I stand before God in judgment, God is not going to judge me on what I felt the Bible meant. God is going to judge me on what he meant when he wrote it and what he gave to me to read.